Let's open our Bibles now to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter as we continue together to work our way through this wonderful epistle of Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we believe in the blood atonement of our Savior, and we would understand even yet again in the depths of our souls that we owe our justification completely to Him that there is no other ground of acceptance but what he did when he propitiated the wrath of God that was against us when he shed his precious blood upon the cross. We also, Heavenly Father, know that even though we are completely righteous in Christ, judicially, morally, we are growing as Christians. Sanctification is a process. And we need the work of the Holy Spirit to help us as we come to this passage to realize and to understand that the evil one indeed would distract and destroy and that we are called to run the race that is before us, to be eager, to be energetic, to do all that we can in the power of the Spirit that is provided to eschew evil and to embrace those things that are consistent with thy divine being and character. And so, Heavenly Father, may we never confuse those two, but help us to come to the text now as those who are justified and who believe in Jesus Christ, who now look to thee to work sanctification within our hearts. And if there are those here, even this morning, who have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, May they see their need as the Spirit of God applies the word in ways that we cannot calculate and we could never even know. And these things we ask in the name of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. We're reading the ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians. This is the Word of God. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. 
If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but not of my own will. I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know? that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, in chapter 8, Paul has shown that believers are often called upon to forego their rights in order to serve others. Did Paul do this? Indeed, he did. And Paul demonstrates this Christ-likeness and can therefore say by example, as he does in chapter 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And therefore, we find here in what Paul has written by divine inspiration, in large part, those truths and principles that will help us to follow Christ better and more sacrificially in the way in which we serve one another. But even more, the passage helps us to focus our gaze on the hope that is before us. So as we come to this passage, the first thing that we see, Paul asserts his freedom in Christ. Paul asserts his freedom in Christ. 
And this constitutes the first six verses. Paul asserts his rights as an apostle. Am I not free? Am I not also an adopted son of God? Do I not have the freedom and the rights and privileges of a son, free from the opinions and demands of mere men? Am I not an apostle? Do I not have the high calling of the apostolic office? Did I not see the risen Lord? And that thought is never far from Paul the apostle. Was I not commissioned for this office, this apostolic office, by our risen Savior? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? Are you not the seal of my apostolic ministry? And so verses 1 and 2 are Paul's apologia is the word he uses, his apology, his defense, in which he is defending his apostolic ministry here and throughout this passage against those who criticize his ministry. And then he enumerates the rights that he has, having said, I have them, even as a child of God and an apostle, what are the rights that I have? Well, first, I have the right to eat and drink, he says in verse 4. And in the context, this means the right to receive the support that most ministers would receive from the church. Second, I have the right to a wife to bring along with me in this very difficult ministry. He says that in verse 5, as other apostles, as brethren of the Lord, probably Joseph and Mary's children after the virgin birth of Christ. Just as Cephas, who was married, brought along a wife in his apostolic ministry. Do I not have that right as well? Third, I have the right not to work outside of this already constantly busy, very difficult and hard ministry in which in circumstances sometimes beyond my control, I find that the weight is so heavy, I cry out for mercy and grace. How indeed could I minister in such a way and not receive the right for support? But Paul had all of these rights, and among those, the right to be supported for his hard work and labor among the gospel. But he did not use those rights. And if you read 1 and 2 Corinthians, you find that there are those who constantly were carping and criticizing the ministry of the Apostle Paul, who claimed to be apostles with better credentials than Paul. And when Paul was not around, they called him weak. For example, in 2 Corinthians 10, His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. And if you read the whole section, you will understand that they argued that Paul just will not forego his rights, that Paul was somehow full of himself. And then Paul was forced to do in 2 Corinthians something even beyond what he does here in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians as he defends himself. He is forced to defend his apostolic ministry when we come to that passage in 2 Corinthians 11 in which there is this litany of the suffering of the apostle Paul in the service of the church where he says, I'm out of my mind to say this. I don't like to focus here, but it's necessary that I defend my apostolic ministry that you understand it's all about Christ and all about his gospel. So that's what he does under this first point. We see that Paul asserts his freedoms and his rights. But then secondly, the second thing, Paul does not insist upon his rights. That takes in verses 7 through 18. 
where he gives several reasons that he could have claimed these rights. For example, in verse 7, he uses the illustration of a soldier, a farmer, and a shepherd. Each of those receives from their labor that which sustains them. In verses 8 through 10, he says this is what God's law teaches. And he goes back to Deuteronomy 25.4. Does not God teach that men are provided for the oxen to labor? Should not then the minister also be provided? And assuredly, he who plows should have a hope of his reward. And assuredly, he who threshes should look forward to participating in the fruit of the threshing. By the way, the Apostle Paul has a very high view of work and its reward. He would be appalled at the crisis in the work ethic and the lack of recognition of the dignity of labor that we find among many today. And then in verses 11 and 12 of this passage, the Apostle goes on to say, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Do we not even more have the right due to my work to share from the support of the church? It is right that one who sows in spiritual things should expect the support of the church. And he indicates in verse 12 that other ministers and teachers have been supplied by the church. In verse 13, he goes on to argue again from the the word that those who ministered, he apparently means in the Jewish temple, shared in the food of the sacrifice. And in Numbers 18, we read of the provision for the priests at the altar. And in verse 14, he gives the rule in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So that the rule should be those preaching the gospel should be provided for by the people of God so that they will not be distracted from their calling. One reason upon another is simply heaped up by the Apostle Paul about the right to use the church's provision. And then in verse 15, he says, in essence, I have used none of the rights for which I have argued. They are rights, but I have used none of those rights. In my circumstances, says the apostle, in essence, considering the enemies I have and what they accuse me of, And how they carp against my ministry, the Apostle Paul thought his ministry could best be served by declining the use of his rights. He would rather die, he says, than be deprived of his right for boasting. And in verse 16, he says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel." Now, by proof of in, by, by right of boasting, he means proving my integrity. Even preaching, he says, is no proof of my integrity. I am inwardly compelled to preach the gospel. I am called to this ministry. I am inwardly impelled. I cannot help but preach the gospel. 
Indeed, I would fear the judgment of God if I did not preach the gospel because of the call that has been laid upon me. Woe to me if I preach not the gospel, says Paul in this passage. Now, I understand this. I really understand this inward sense of being compelled to preach the gospel. John Calvin certainly understood it. When Farrell pressed upon him the duty to remain in Geneva, the last place on earth where he wanted to stay and minister, yet he felt that the imprecations of God would fall upon him. If he did not, he was inwardly compelled. And so in verse 17, the preaching itself was not a ground of boasting. He could not help but preach. Paul says, this is a stewardship that is committed to me. I have been commanded to preach, but I have not been commanded to take support from the churches. And in this stewardship entrusted to me, I am a willing slave. Now, I hope you don't mind, but I, I, I don't reference a lot of personal things. But if I preach the worst sermon that I possibly could preach, I still want to be in the pulpit. I have a study leave coming up in early March in which I have to be out of the pulpit. I have to prepare for, for conference addresses, and I have to take that time to do it. And I should, I should relish the time, but I dread being out of the pulpit. <laughs> you see, Paul the Apostle understood that he was a willing slave to this thing. He was compelled to this thing to preach the gospel. It was something that was entrusted to him. And every God-called minister has a sense of call that I really think no one but the minister of the Word can fully understand because it's unique in many ways. But again in verse 18, what then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So to preach the gospel without remuneration was necessary in Paul's circumstances in order to demonstrate in his setting his integrity. For what would it be worth, Paul says, to preach the gospel if people believed these things that were said about me by those who carp against the gospel and against my ministry? In other words, says Charles Hodge, Paul's reward was to sacrifice himself for others. He speaks of being permitted to serve others gratuitous, gratuitously as a reward. It's all the reward he wanted was to preach the gospel and that the gospel be heard and received and believed. And so he renounced his right to be supplied because in his peculiar circumstances and considering his opponents, this deserved, this deserved his utmost consideration. This decision served the church. Now Paul's own words in another place give us the best commentary on the decision that he made. And those are the words that we find in Philippians chapter 2, where the apostle says, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, you are not the Apostle Paul. You do not have Paul's ministry. You are not an apostle. You do not have to make the same decisions that Paul had to make. But you have your own decisions to make. You have your own constituency to serve. You have your own family members and friends and those with whom you serve in school or in business. And the principle that the Apostle Paul is enunciating here is the same for you, even though your circumstances differ. Where will my giving up legitimate rights for the cause of God and truth and for the sake of the gospel be required of me? Am I willing to search my heart and to analyze my setting and my circumstances in order that I also, after the pattern of the Christ-likeness we see in Philippians 2, will make myself nothing? And none of us has arrived at this. We are growing, and the Spirit of God is at work within us. But nonetheless, we should be growing, and we should be applying that question to our lives. Now, not surprisingly, we come to the third observation. Paul has already shown that he was simply a commissioned steward, and now we come to the third point, which is Paul the slave of all. Paul the slave of all, which takes in verses 19 through 23. In verses 19 and 20, for Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, a doulos, a slave to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those out side the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessing. So Paul was not a doormat. We know that. He was bold. He was principled. He was clear-minded. He knew how to fight for the truth. He knew how to fight for what was right. Nonetheless, he calls himself a doulos, a slave of all. Though free from the opinions of others and never compromising principle, he was very willing to adopt a Jewish or a Gentile lifestyle, not the sin, but the lifestyle to win sinners to Christ. Do not abuse this text. Of all the scripture passages This passage is sometimes one of the most abused. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Paul did not accommodate to the sinful cultural drifts. He was principled. Paul did not compromise the gospel depending upon the setting. He recognized the fixed truth of the gospel of Christ, and that that fixed truth 
must be proclaimed and can be proclaimed into any ethnic or cultural setting with various traditions and various customs. As Peter Naylor has put it, in the task of evangelism, Paul has been more than willing to accommodate to all, but will never allow himself to be dominated by the prevailing norms. So, Paul on one occasion had Timothy circumcised because that served the gospel among the Jews. He refused to have Titus circumcised because that, in that particular instance, would have been a denial of the gospel. He cut his hair in Sincrea in relation to a vow. Some of the early missionaries to China adopted Chinese dress in order better to minister to the Chinese, but they did not adopt Chinese paganism. And so in verses 21 and following, among the Gentiles, Paul did not follow Jewish ceremonies, but he did not disregard the moral law of God now in the context of the redemption of Christ living under the gospel, he calls it the law of Christ. And he loved the law in the full light of the gospel in union with Christ, and so should we. In verse 22, Paul speaks of what we covered in chapter 8 last week. With the weak, he might refrain from meat offered to idols, even though meat is just meat. He would give up that right. But his entire approach was to promote the gospel. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. Paul did all things for the gospel. He lived for Christ. He lived for the gospel. Christ was everything to him as he should be to us. By the way, the end of verse 23, literally, in order that I might be his joint partner, some exegetes actually think that Paul is pointing to the end of time when Christ comes again and he and his converts will be raised together in the last day. Now, Paul had his own calling. Paul had his own ministry and had daily obligations that are very different from most of our obligations on a daily basis. But we should have the same heart. We should have the same desire to see the gospel to go forth. We should press forward, as did Paul, growing in this ability to serve others and to sacrifice his own rights when called to do so. We should also press forward to the high calling that is in Christ Jesus, as he says in Philippians. And so since you are new creatures in Christ, you now have the Spirit of God within you, And you and I can learn how to exert ourselves for the sake of the gospel in serving husband, wife, children, teacher, enemy, because we have so so been served by our Savior. Paul did not live for earthly reward, and and in an ultimate sense, though you draw a salary, though I am paid generously, and the pastors of this church are supported. Nonetheless, ultimately, we do not live for those things. Paul says you must exert yourself in learning better and better and more and more how to live this way as a Christian 
And if you are not a Christian, it won't happen. If you are a believer in Christ, it will happen, and it must happen, and it is happening. And that leads us then to the final thing we want to see in this text, and I want to hover on this last point a bit. Paul running to win. Paul running to win. Verses 24 through 27. Let's read these verses again. Do you not know that in a race all runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified." Do you see the connection? Paul says, this is how I live. This is also how you need to learn to live because brothers and sisters were in a race toward that imperishable crown that awaits us from the hand of the Savior. And more and more we learn how to sacrifice rights when called upon to do so and serve others and we exert ourselves in Christian living Never think that because you're justified by faith that that means you have no concern to exert yourself in sanctification and in learning holiness of life and how to live for the sake of God and truth and others. Now the context of this mention of the games were the Isthmian games. We're all familiar, of course, with the the Olympian Games that was founded in the 8th century B.C., was held, I think, every four years, and the honors were ultimately won uh, for the glory of Zeus. It was thoroughly pagan. They were great gatherings, those Olympian Games. As a matter of fact, many things happened there, not only athletics. Herodotus actually read a portion of one of his histories at one of those gatherings for the Olympian Games. But here we have the Isthmian Games that would have been familiar to everyone who lived in Corinth. The Isthmus of Corinth, of course, is that land bridge that connects the Peloponnesian Peninsula with the mainland of Greece near Corinth. So they were called the Isthmian Games. Jeffers, in his book, The Greco-Roman World, speaks of these games that were held in a sacred grove near Corinth in the honor of Poseidon. So Paul takes, this is becoming all things to all men, by the way, he takes something with which they were familiar in their culture, and he helps them to see beyond it to something that is greater and something that is better. And he references these Isthmian games here that were held every third summer And people from all over Greece would gather, and they would be involved in wrestling and boxing and running races, and probably at a certain point, uh, chariot races and such things, and they would receive glory, immortal glory, so they thought. But no, says Paul, that was not immortal glory. Let me tell you, immortal glory is serving Christ. And he speaks of running in verse 24, in stadio, in the stadium. So he has in mind primarily, though not exclusively in this passage, actually running the race. And in verse 24, it's a race that you run to win. 
Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain that prize. You run to win. All the entries run, but only one could win in the games. The goal is to outrun the competitors. Now, Paul is not saying here that we try to outrun one another in the church. He brings to mind the learning, the training, the preparation, the effort, the exertion, and how we are to run. And he says, run as one who is running to obtain the prize. Have you entered the race? You enter by faith in Christ. Are you running the race? Are you training? Are you involved in appropriate self-denial? Are you growing? Are you becoming strong? And the call to discipline is found in verses 25 to 27. All who compete, and he uses the verb agonizomai. You hear the word in English, agony. So you are engaging in this athletic contest, the word means by means of fighting, struggling, striving. The Christian life is a life. This is part of it, not all of it, but it is a significant, indispensable part of it. It is a life of fighting and struggling and striving to grow and to mature and to serve and to live for Christ and not for my pride and for myself. And so whether in the race or wrestling or boxing, all are called to discipline. A.T. Robertson says of verse 25, an athletic axiom, training for 10 months was required under the direction of trained judges. Abstinence from wine was required and a rigid diet and regiment, regimen of habits. And they run or they compete for, for, uh, for running, uh, winning a race or, or boxing in order to, to win what? An olive or a pine leaf garland. But we run, says Paul, for an incorruptible crown. So Paul says, I do not run aimlessly. And the adverb here means uncertainly. I do not run without a definite goal. I see where I'm running. My gaze is there. I am running to win the race. I'm not running aimlessly, slowing down, dropping out. I'm not running lethargically. I'm not running without spirit. Are there those who claim the name of Christ here this morning, and you are spiritless in your Christian walk, lethargic in your desire to run the race. And he says, I do not box as one, as one beating the air. No, says the Apostle Paul, I'm not like one who is boxing beating the air. I want to hit my opponent. I want to hit my opponent. I want to win over my opponent. Missing the punch? No, says Paul. You shadow box when you have no opponent. 
We aim at the opponent. And what is the opponent? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And the discipline is described in verse 27 in the first part when he says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself become disqualified. In the New Testament, this word that is used here is used only here and once in Luke. It means it's translated, I think, in the authorized version, I buffet my body. In the noun, it means a part of the body below the eye. The verbal use of the word is to strike under the eye. In other words, to beat it black and blue. So he speaks of keeping his body under control, disciplined. Now, the body is not sinful, but we express sin, the sin of the heart, through the body. As Robertson and Plummer put it, it is like the horses in a chariot race which must be kept well in hand by whip and rein if the prize is to be secure. Paul was not willing, says a commentator, Paul was not willing for his body to be his master. You see how different it is being a Christian from all that the culture teaches us? Paul was not willing for his body to be his master. But remember, he's using athletic images in reference to overcoming sin. He's not talking about monastic fasting, self-flagellation, or anything of that nature but a heart that is controlled by the Holy Spirit and it shows in the whole man, in the whole of you, body and soul. And therefore, in verse 27, literally, Paul says that he brought brought it, this body of his, he brought it under bondage. And he says he did that lest I be rejected. Rejected for the prize. The herald at the games made announcements and called to the competitors. Paul is both herald and runner. Both herald and wrestler. Both herald and boxer. He is both herald and competitor. And Paul knows that the Lord will keep him and all of his elect to the end. But he also knows that the one in whom the Lord is savingly working will not live as a norm, a complacent life. When we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, it changes us. We're new men and women in Christ. That old complacence is gone. And Paul wants his life and what he preaches to be consistent Oh, how every preacher, real preacher, wants his inner life and what he preaches to be consistent. And how how the argument is constantly going on in the heart, that's not consistent with what I preach, not consistent with what I want to bring to my people. Well, all of us as Christians will have that battle in his heart. We should want the truth of the gospel and how we live to be more and more consistent. So that's what Paul says. 
I have all these rights. I didn't use those rights. Rather than that, I become the slave of all. And you know what? It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of exertion. This is not works righteousness. He is not saying he's accepted in Christ on the basis of what he does. He is saying, as one already accepted, he is growing morally as a Christian. And the, the Bible compares that to battling and fighting and running and boxing and wrestling. Agonizomai. Now let this spur you on. Revelation 3.11 Hold fast that which thou hast that no one take thy crown. 2 Timothy 2.5 If a man contend in the games he is not crowned except he have contended lawfully. Follow the rules. Psalm 63.8 My soul followeth hard after thee. Do you understand that? My soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. So the reward at the end, are Christians rewarded? Yes. And that reward is the reward of grace, not of merit. Because as we read in Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When I'm striving, it is the Holy Spirit working within me. When I'm fighting, it is the Spirit of God growing me as a believer, preparing me for heaven, moving me toward the finish line. And they competed for a garland that fades. But Paul says, you have an incorruptible wreath that will be placed upon your head. Now you know this is a symbol for something even greater, don't you? Something even, even, even more that we may lower, bring our, our trophies and lay them at Jesus' feet. So crown, wreath, what glory awaits us for the glory of God. I have, I have no idea it's so great. Now I want you to take your Bibles in your hands please. There are five times in the New Testament that speak of receiving wreaths or crowns. Eric Sauer, the German evangelical, asked a question about each of those. I want us to read them, and I want to read Dr. Sauer's questions. The first is found right here in this text, chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, Verses 24 and 25. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. The question of Dr. Sauer, can the racer be crowned who failed in the running? Can the racer be crowned who failed in the running? Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians 2, 
verse 19. So we've just seen the wreath of incorruption. Now we have the wreath of rejoicing. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So we have the wreath of rejoicing. Dr. Sauer asks a question. Can he be crowned for turning many to righteousness who never turned one? You are my joy and crown, says Paul. Can he be crowned for turning many to righteousness who never turned one? 1 Peter chapter 5. Please turn there. Verses 1 through 4, applicable to all, but especially to the elders of the church. 1 Peter 4, 5, beginning with verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The unfading crown of glory. The wreath of glory. Dr. Sauer asks the question, can a disciple be rewarded for shepherding a flock who never did it? Ministers, elders, all of us who have families, who have someone in life to help to shepherd? 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you will turn there. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. I'll begin at verse 6. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved, all who have loved his appearing. This wreath of righteousness. Sour calls a wreath of watchfulness because it is awarded to those who are watchful of Christ coming again. And his question is, can a wreath of watchfulness be given to him who never watched? 
Can a wreath of watchfulness be given to him who never watched? And then James, first chapter, the book of James. Chapter 1, verse 12. James 1, 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. The question, can he be crowned for resisting temptation? Who succumbed to it? And then Dr. Sauer quotes someone else. He said, when Romania became a kingdom in 1881, King Charles, as there was no crown, said, Send to the arsenal and melt an iron crown out of the captured cannon in token that it was won on the field of battle and bought and paid for with our lives. And so there on that day will be Archbishop Cranmer and Ridley and Latimer, the missionaries from Geneva who went to Brazil and were all killed, And there will be the rest of us too. Have we fought the good fight of faith? Have we bought and paid for that crown, not meritoriously, but through the work of God within us? Have we bought and paid for it with our very lives of sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom of God and for others? Christian, we need... And I think especially now, given the trends and directions of our culture, we need to be militant and not complacent. We need to be winning battle after battle for King Jesus. And I'm talking about the battles in the Christian heart. We need to be winning battle after battle for King Jesus. And then when he crowns us, When Jesus the King crowns us, we will cast our crowns down at Jesus' feet. I pray God uses this in our lives to challenge the minister's hearts, the elder's hearts, the deacon's hearts, the hearts of father and mother and children who are here. Run the race. Set your gaze on the prize. Do not drop out. Do not become spiritless. Do not become complacent. Run. Be spurred on. Run. Run. Run the race for the honor of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.